You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. In your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. We're in a wonderful series in the book of Philippians entitled Impact. If you remember this, a couple weeks ago I asked the question, I saw that I, I uh, caused a few of you to stumble because usually you don't get asked this question. If you could grab one of the 66 books in the Bible, which one would it be? And boy, yeah, we heard Ephesians, I heard John, I heard Psalms, I heard Proverbs. I mean, I heard some great books in the Bible. Well, my answer was Philippians. And so that's what we're studying, aren't we? We're studying the book of Philippians. I would grab the book of Philippians and just dive into that because I love this book. I really do. And I gave you a few reasons, if you remember why. One is the book of Philippians exalts Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I love to read anything about that. I, I love to, to be part of something that encourages me to exalt Jesus. And it wasn't just how or he was exalted. It was how he got to be exalted. That he took the form of a servant. Um, that that, he, that he, what he did is he became flesh. It, it's amazing. He took the road of humility. There was another reason that I love this book. And it's because the church of Philippi reminds me of you, this church. I see what God's done in your church. I see so many similarities in the book of Philippi. And the third reason is because the message of Jesus or the Christology of Jesus in Philippians is clearly in the context of relationship. Paul's always talking about relationship to Jesus Christ and relationship with one another. So with that said, here's another question. If you could grab just one passage or a group of scriptures or verses from the Bible, which passage would it be? Well, for me, it's this passage. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is a passage that is the heart of the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it is a powerful, powerful statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what it's doing is it's telling us in profound ways that we have reason to hope. We have reason to have joy. We have reason to live our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. And I love it. But when you dive into Philippians chapter 2, one of the first things you notice is the subject matter that the Apostle Paul deals with. Now this last week for four or five days, we, we had all of our grandkids or most of our grandkids staying with us. So I'm a little tired today, you know. But they came early Tuesday morning. They left late Thursday night, or Friday night, that's right. Friday night, and uh, we, then we, we traded off with the little ones. So we had all five of them at different times of this week. My job on Tuesday, because Annette needed to be here at work, was I needed to be there to greet the grandkids when they showed up on Tuesday. Well, I was there, and I was ready, but right before they arrive, our furnace blows out, and then the furnace guys show up the same time that my grandkids show up. And I'm thinking, okay, we are, we're, this, is gonna, this is a mess, a little bit of a mess, but we're going to make it work. So I asked them, I said, let's get out of here. Where do you guys want to go to breakfast? You know, I heard about five different places we can go from each one of them. I mean, it was like, it was like 15 different places. And I said, guys, we've got to land on one place. We can only land on one place. And finally, we decided which place we were going to go. But almost every question I asked those three kids, it was a 
different answer. They couldn't agree on anything to save their neck. I mean, they really couldn't. And I'm thinking, my goodness, how are we going to do this? By the end of the day, 7 o'clock that evening came, I was sitting on the couch and I was staring. I was in a daze and I was just thinking, wow, this has been one long day. Moms, good for you because this was a tough one. I was sitting on the couch between two of my grandkids and I counted in 90 seconds, I got asked 10 questions. I couldn't, even, I couldn't even get the answer out before another question came. I was exhausted. But one thing that I realized is these kids, the most difficult thing they dealt with was trying to come up with something that was unified. I mean, come on, let's go to the same place. Let's do the same thing. It didn't even come out that way. It was unity. They couldn't agree with each other. So here's my point. When it comes to unity in the church and the body of Christ, it's probably a whole lot like my grandkids. Can we all agree that we all need to work on living in harmony with one another? I mean, I think we can all agree to that. Well, I want you to look at verse 2 in this amazing chapter. Verse 2 says this. Then make my joy complete, this is the Apostle Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Being like-minded. That's so counterintuitive especially in the world that we live in today. It's not something that comes natural. And unity is so misunderstood. When I hear people say unity, I'm always wondering, what in the world do they mean when they say unity? Because there are a variety of definitions for unity. While we think it's one thing, it's really something else. Well, here's what unity is not. The Apostle Paul does not say this is unity. There are three things that I think of that unity is not. Number one, unity is not conformity. I don't have to look like you. I don't have to talk like you. I don't have to act like you. And because I don't doesn't mean that I don't have unity or I'm not in unity with you. In fact, look at the way this wonderful church started. Remember how the church of Philippi started? It started with a motley crew. I mean, really. It was a group that came together that had nothing in common. Nothing. I mean, you have a former slave demoniac you have a middle-class jailer. You have a fairly wealthy purple maker named Lydia. And they come together. And again, I would have just loved to have been a fly on the wall at that first life group meeting. I would have loved to have been part of that. I would have loved to have sat in there and thought, wow, I wonder how all this is going to come together. Wouldn't have given them a chance. But they made it. They made it. They weren't like each other. The second thing that unity is not, it's not proximity. You know, I don't have to be near you or close to you physically to be unified with you. Again, I take my my cues from this passage of Scripture. Where did the Apostle Paul write it? Well, we really believe that he wrote it from a a prison in Rome. And he was writing it to the church of Philippi. And I, I did a little Google search, and I've done this before. It's over 800 miles. Well, in those days, I mean, even now, 800 miles is quite a bit of distance. Back then, it was like worlds apart. When you get 800 miles, how did you get there? You walked. It's a long, long way. And so they didn't have to be in proximity to be unified. And, and the third thing that unity is not, it's not unanimity. Now, here's the big one. I want you to hear this. I don't even have to agree with you to have unity. You don't have to agree with me. We don't have to agree on every single detail about whatever the project may be or the efforts may be that we're involved in. Because if you're always 
in total agreement all of the time on everything you call it a cult. Okay? Because you know this. I mean, two or three of you get together in my name. There's not um, a lot of uh, agreement. I mean, there's, there's disagreement, and that's all right. You can get together and talk those things out. The whole idea, and that's the miracle, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes into our lives, is even though we have disagreements on certain things, we keep moving forward, and we keep loving Jesus. That's incredible. That's what I love about the church. That's what I love about the body of Christ. Humans don't work this way. They don't come together and just lay down and die and say, yeah, we agree. We agree on everything. They don't do that. We will never have the same ideas because because, listen to this, because we are all in the image of God. And, and the image of God is, is not one-dimensional or two-dimensional or three-dimensional. I love the image of God. It's a collective group of all of us around the world, believers in Jesus Christ on this planet. We get to represent the image of God, the creativity of God, the variety of God, and I love it. I love the variety and the creativity of my maker. I love how Jesus Christ does this in the body of Christ because we reflect. You know what? It would be so boring if everyone in the body of Christ was like you and me. You want them to be, by the way. I mean, you, you, sometimes we work hard to get there. But that's not the body of Christ. That's not a reflection of God. That's not a reflection of his creativity. It's not. I mean, you have one place that you really see this play out right here, that, that there will be disagreements. You have to work through it. It's called marriage. So if you're in a marriage, or just two of you, two of you just complicate everything. You know, just two of you get together and everything goes, it can go sideways. You know, it really can't. Why? Because uh, Annette is reflecting a part of the heart of God that I may not reflect. I reflect a part of the heart of God that she may not reflect. Together, we get to reflect the heart of God in the way that we do as man and wife. It's incredible. It's incredible. I think one of the greatest gifts that was ever given to me was given to me by the community I was part of growing up and my father. Because the community that I grew up in was predominantly Latino, Hispanic. And I learned how to speak Spanish. I don't do it much anymore because I haven't really been immersed in it. But habla Espanol, okay. And you know what? One of the greatest gifts that I was given growing up was my father's deep appreciation for other cultures and him passing those deep appreciations on to me because they reflect the totality of God. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful because I see people today, today, this moment, struggling with things like this. It's all of us that come together in the name of Jesus that make up the body of Christ. Paul is saying, you don't have to see eye to eye with each other. Rather, you need to walk hand in hand with each other. Paul is writing this because of his concern that there is some force at work in this church that will bring disunity, that will disunify them. So what's interesting here is when you read this, when you go through these four chapters, what's interesting to me is he doesn't, he doesn't bring up the specific issue or issues that may cause disunity. He's not talking about a person. He's not talking about, about a particular problem. And it's kind of curious to me. He doesn't do it here. He does in other letters. 
If you read some of the other prison epistles, some of the other places that he wrote to churches, I mean, he writes the church of Galatia, and he says, you guys are really messed up with this. He said, you're still telling people they got to be circumcised to be a believer? That really cuts down on membership in the body of Christ. He writes to the church of Corinth, and he says, you got some serious moral problems. I mean, he calls it out. He writes to the church of Colossia, and he says to them, because of their influence of Asia Minor and the Lycus Valley, he says, you're being influenced by kind of a, a, a mix of philosophy and this whole thing about uh, uh, monotheism, or uh, excuse me, yeah, monotheism and other things that don't have to do with Christ, don't have to do with the supremacy of Jesus. He's not afraid to call it out, but he doesn't call it out here. Paul doesn't try to solve the issue or speak to it. Rather, listen to this, he speaks to their hearts and about keeping Jesus the main thing. That's how he addresses it. Did you know that you and I cannot manufacture unity? We cannot create unity. So let me give this announcement. Stop trying. You can't do it. You really can't do it. Unity is not something to be manufactured. It's something to be discovered. Unity is not and cannot be manufactured. It can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. True unity is only found in Jesus. Only. Who is Jesus? Not just what he has done is really where the Apostle Paul leads the church of Philippi to find unity. It's amazing. Who Jesus is and what he has done are what bring us the unity that God's spirit wants us to enjoy. So living out unity, here's the, here's the, here's the point here. Here's where we want to go. Living out unity in a deeply divided world. How do we do that? What, what, what is it about Jesus that we need to discover? There are four things here in this passage and I'm going to throw them out to you. Number one is this. Begin with the gratitude and encouragement found in Jesus Christ. Now, let me say that. Gratitude and encouragement, this is a starting point. It's not what gets you across the finish line, but it is where you must start. And how many know if you don't start in the right place, you end up in the wrong place? And I find this so, so important for me to begin the day with gratitude. Because if I don't start the day with gratitude, I'm not going to end the day well. I'm not going to get to where God wants me to be. And so Paul is saying, here, you need to be encouraged. There needs to be gratitude and encouragement found in Jesus Christ. This is one of the most important lessons we learn, especially for us who are in recovery. We recognize that, man, if we wake up on the wrong side of the bed and we're grumpy, you know what's going to happen? It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. You're going to be looking for every reason to, 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 under your breath, curse the people around you. I don't want to live that way. I want to live with this deep gratitude and encouragement that comes through Jesus Christ. The starting point of unity is not debate. It's not discussion. It's understanding. It's embracing. It's being thankful for what Jesus has already done. Look at verse 1. It says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. I love that. Look at all the words that Paul uses here. 
I mean, he uses a lot of words here to get the point across. Encouragement, comfort, sharing, tenderness, and compassion. Paul is saying in verse 1 to take a moral inventory. That's what he's asking you to do. He's putting up a list for us so we can get our day started out right. And and by the way, he expands on this in chapter 4, doesn't he? Think on whatsoever things are what? Good. Whatsoever things are honest, of good report. So here is a teaser. It's kind of an appetizer for chapter 4. And he's saying, listen, you guys need to start your day off right. You need to be filled with gratitude and encouragement for what Christ has done for you. Take a moral inventory. Take stock of all the blessings. Take a break. Listen, that's what he's saying to me. Take a break from everything you see is wrong in the world. Because that's where we gravitate. That's where, where people are gravitating right now. They're looking at everything that's wrong in the world. Listen, I'm not talking about living in denial. I'm talking about what is your heart? What's your attitude? Because when it comes right down to it, when we stand before Jesus, I'm not accountable for all of your hearts. I'm accountable for mine. And gratitude and encouragement are huge. Folks, would you do this? Would you take a Sabbath from the crap you have to deal with every day? I'm just saying it that way. Paul uses the word too in chapter 3, the same word. Take a break. Man, I've seen some of you are just, you you brought stuff on yourself that you weren't meant to carry. You're not meant to carry. Paul's saying, listen, take a break from everything that's wrong in the world right now. Here's how you do that. Paul says, this is what you do. Focus on his provision. Focus on the provision of Jesus Christ. He uses the word love. So ask the question, who's committed to you? How is Jesus committed to you? Write a few things down. How do you see Jesus committed to you? How do you see that others love you and are committed to you? He uses the word sharing. So here's what I would say about that. Who fills you? What has Jesus given you? How has he filled you? Peace, hope, love, long-suffering. And maybe look around for how others might fill you. You know, I found something out about those that I, I'm close to in relationship, and I said this the other day to my wife. I said, huh, it's kind of interesting. The folks that, 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 I, that, that I'm close to, those that I've, I'm friends with over the years, they are Sabbath-friendly people. And what I mean by that is when I'm with them, I rest. I, I'm filled. Look, look for places and people uh, that can fill you. Not only how Jesus fills you, but how others might fill you. Tenderness. I love the word he uses here. Who cares for you? Where has Jesus given you grace when you deserve judgment? When you deserve punishment? Where did you get grace when you shouldn't have? And you know you shouldn't have. Where did you get that grace? Write that down. That's a point of gratitude. That's focusing on his provision. And then the word compassion. I think compassion has a lot to do with listening and understanding. It's the gift we give others in relationship. And, and, and asking the question, who understands you? Who understands you? Because you know someone does. It's Jesus Christ. There are others that do as well. Now it goes on from here. So if Jesus understands you, who do you need to understand or listen to, in other words, show compassion to. This is a great way to start chapter 2. I mean, this is really good. So here it is. A sign of unity, listen, is an increased gratitude versus increased fault-finding. Where are you on the scale? 
That, really, that's, about, that's what Paul's saying. Take an inventory. Find out where you are here. Be honest with that. Are you more about fault finding? Now listen, it, there's, there's nothing wrong in proportion to seeing and, what, and knowing what's wrong. It's not what we're saying here. But if it drives your life, if it consumes you, if it is an obsession of yours, then it's wrong. It's not what Paul is saying here. Paul says here, listen, you need to, you need to find some balance here. And so you find balance. Do you have increased gratitude or are you increasing in fault finding? Which of these is on the rise in your life? Do you spot what's wrong with things or do you spot what's right with God and with others? Number two, here it is. Live out the humility embodied in Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the things I appreciate the most about Philippians chapter two is the humility of Jesus Christ. And through that humility, that journey of humility, he is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. I love it. The mind and the humility of Jesus to me when I read this is outstanding because I, I want to be noticed, you know. Uh, I, I, I want people to notice me. I, I want to be understood. We want people to hear our voice. Today you're living in a world where everyone wants everyone else to hear their voice. You know, Jesus came. You know why he came? This is amazing. Maybe you've never heard it put this way. Jesus came to hear your voice, to listen. Jesus came to hear you say, I repent. Forgive me of my sins. He's listening. He's waiting for you to say, I invite you into my life. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. Jesus came to hear you. And you know one of the reasons I know that? There's evidence of it. Because in the Gospels, Jesus asked over 100 questions, different questions to those he encounters. What's he doing? Thirty uh, In three and a half years, he asked 100 questions. Wow. Why is he saying? He's wanting to hear. He's wanting to listen. Because he, know, he knows that brings value to your life. This is amazing. Jesus came. Here it is. Jesus came to earth, according to this passage we're going to read in a moment, to blend in with us. Verses 2 through 4 says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What's it saying? It's saying this. Be motivated like Jesus. Have the same mind as Jesus. So what are, what are the hidden motives of disunity? Well, Paul tells us here. The hidden motives of disunity is selfish ambition. That's one. A hidden motive of disunity is vain conceit. So here's the key. Eliminate selfish ambition and vain conceit. Easier said than done. But it's a choice we make. It just doesn't go away. Selfish ambition and vain conceit just doesn't disappear. There are choices we make. By the way, let me say this. If you're married, verse 4 will do wonders for your relationship. Verse 4 is absolutely, I mean, it takes it from good to great. It really does. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Wouldn't that rock the world? Man, that, that one right there rocks the world. 
I read that. Every time I read that, I get convicted. I do. I, I mean, really convicted. I think, oh, man, I, I don't know if this, if this is where I live all the time. I want to. This is where I want to live. This is where I want to be. Selfish ambition is success. Listen, this is what it means. It's success or gain at the cost of someone else or relationship, another relationship. Vain conceit is promoting, self-promoting, because you believe that you are the most important person on the planet, which is really inspired by insecurities in our life. So here's a sign of growing in unity. It's a decreasing level of conflict because of conceit and self-ambition. So when those go down, unity goes up. Do you see how that works? When those go down, unity goes up. Number three is this. Point three, embrace the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. I love these passages of Scripture. This right here, this is amazing and consistent with one of the themes of Philippians. And one of those major themes is the theme of joy, isn't it? So what Paul's about to tell us here, what you need to know is this is one of the most ancient songs written in the early church. This actually changes to a song. They start, it's a song, is what's happening here. This is kind of incredible to me. And, and so when you think about joy, when you think about joy and how to express joy, how do you do that? Usually in our songs. I mean, there's a lot of ways, but that's one way we do it. But I can't help but connect these next few verses to the song of praise that you hear here. I can't help but connect to Acts chapter 16, verse 25. I can't. Because it was in a Philippian jail at midnight, in Acts 16, 25, that Paul and Silas started to do what? Sing a song. It could have been this one. I think Paul's making a connection with this church. I think that's what's happening here. He's making this amazing connection. When Paul and Silas are in this Philippian jail 15 years earlier, and they sang a song. For Paul and Silas, this was an incredible God moment. And I think Paul is connecting his song in Philippians with his song in Acts chapter 16. This church started, listen, this church started with a song of of worship. That's how this church started. It started with a song of worship to Jesus. Listen to what it says. I love this. Verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. This is remarkable. Jesus changes everything. Absolutely everything. These verses tell me that my life can be changed because of what he has done for me and what he's done for you. John Stott said this, no one ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus Christ. Everyone who encounters Jesus either hates him for his claim, they fear him because of his insight, or they surrender to him because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. You just don't have a a casual relationship. Listen, if you just like Jesus, you haven't met the real Jesus yet. You see, songs in ancient days were teaching tools. 
because there was a high level of, of illiteracy. So they used songs. This was one of those songs they used to teach about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And what they believe then is what we believe today. It hasn't changed. It's the same thing. They used a song to teach. Uh, my grandkids are in this, um, this gathering called Classical, classical Conversations. And Ella, she's my 10-year-old granddaughter, and every time we get together, she wants to tell me about some of the history because she knows I love it. And we talk together. We talk about the Middle Ages. Can you believe that, doing that with your 10-year-old granddaughter? Talking about Middle Ages and, and William the Great and, and Martell the Hammer and all those people. And here she starts, I said, well, what about so-and-so? I'll ask her about a person and a time of history. She just stops and she starts singing. Because in classical conversations, they're actually teaching her history through song. So she'll stop and, and I'll be listening. <laughs> Why are you singing? She goes, that's how I learned. That's how I learned. That's how I learned history. That's exactly what's happening here. They're being taught. They're being taught about Jesus Christ through a song. It says the very nature of God. The word used here is the word morphia, not the word skena. They're different. You need to know. I'm just going to pull this apart. The word skena means something on, just on the outside. Actually, it's a, it's a term used in theater. A skena is like the scene. That's where we get the word scene from. It's a backdrop. It, it's, it, it just keeps you from seeing what's behind. And they can also use it. You see those, those masks for theater? Those, you know, it's used the same word for mask. So the word here is saying that God didn't come and just mask himself. The word is morphia. That he is fully man and fully God. Jesus is exactly God. Morphia means the inner essence of. Jesus is not the form of God. He is not like God. He doesn't just have the face of God. He's not just the surface of God. He's not just a God. He is God himself. And that's what sets us apart. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love that. That word advantage. The NIV uses advantage. Yours might use the word grasp. Basically what it's saying here is he's not holding on to his own selfish ambition for position and authority. That he lets that go and he comes and he takes the advantage he had in heaven. And he offers that to us and he redeems us and gives us eternal life. That's incredible. To me that's the way the gospel plays out. And I'm going to say this again. That's why I love the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is the gospel in action. It is the advantage helping the disadvantage. That is the gospel. You are at a huge disadvantage before Jesus. In fact, you were an enemy. I was once an enemy. I was once afar off. But now I've been made near through the blood of Jesus Christ. He took his advantage. Didn't hold on to it. But he used it to help me. He used his advantage to help you. It says he was made not just to come as a religious figure or a political figure. How did he come? A servant. And he even uses this other phrase. It's astounding. Folks, if you let this sink in, it's incredible. He made himself nothing. Say that with me. He made himself nothing. Do you know the impact of what that means? Seriously? In the Greek and Hebrew, this is what it means. Everything he had inside, he poured outside. He left not one drop. He put it all out there. It's equal to a drink offering in the Old Testament. He made himself nothing. He poured his life out. 
He didn't leave anything. He poured it out. The key here is this, imitate the the servanthood of Jesus Christ. Listen, a mature sign of unity is to actively lower your position to elevate others. I probably need to say that again. It's hard for our ears to hear that. I know it is for me. A mature sign of unity is to actively lower your position to elevate others. And here's the last thought. I'm going to close with this. Tune your heart to worship Jesus Christ. Predispose yourself. Make a decision to tune your heart, to lean into Jesus Christ, to worship him. Paul ends this beautiful passage with this crescendo. It's an amazing crescendo. Remember we said it's a song? It ends in this crescendo in verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That is a crescendo, if I've ever heard one. Listen, worship sets and changes culture. It's about opening your heart and life to the work of God's Holy Spirit. Worship brings us in alignment with God's Holy Spirit. Have you ever just known you've been out of alignment with God? And you can't, you can't even figure it out sometimes. I know I can't. They man, it just feels off. I mean, what's, why am I out of alignment? <clears throat> Let me give you a remedy. Start to worship, and you'll go come right into alignment. I mean, you might not get all your answers. You might not get all your problems solved, but you will be in alignment. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying we come and we worship Jesus Christ. That's what we do. When we lift our hands, what we are doing is it represents the lifting of our lives to Jesus. So here's the key in all of this. Lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Leave this place and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. When I started reading this, oh, eight or ten months ago, getting ready for our time together, said, Lord, give me those things you want me to hang my hat on every day. And I'm going to repeat those, and you've heard me saying before, the three things that I really gain from this wonderful book that I can use every single day. Exalt Jesus, love people, and have fun doing it. Have some joy in my life. These are three things that we can count our life on. Would you bow your head? I'm going to ask that the worship team just come forward. We're going to close because of the nature of this passage. We're going to close with a song. That's what we're going to do. Father, we just thank you for the word that you've given us here today. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.